0: You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it sucks.
1: Enjoy the show.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, live in Malibu on location. Very excited. My guest today, incredible musical producer, Gary Miller, amazing, amazing man who has worked with every star you can ever imagine. And I'm really, really happy about it. I also want to thank you guys so much for all your support again very very thankful when i look at my guest gary miller one of the first things i think about was i was able to get tickets to the 40th anniversary of atlantic records at madison square garden i believe was 1986 a friend of mine got me tickets on the floor press passes and i got a chance to be there and witness some of the greatest musical artists of all time but one thing that struck me was that throughout the show amazing acts would perform from foreigner to sam and dave all different kinds of artists and i remember where they introduced led zeppelin who was performing with the late john bonham the drummer who passed away his son and I remember Jimmy Page walked out on stage and it was like a jack-in-the-box. The entire crowd stood in unison when he walked out before he even said a word. And I thought to myself as I saw that, this is why I want to be in the business. Because I want to be around producers and singers and guitar players and comedians and all people in the entertainment business that move people that make a difference i want to be around the people from behind the scenes of led zeppelin that you don't see that they trust that means something to them the relationship and the music or the art that they create is something that's so special it's so unique so extraordinary that a person can just walk on stage without saying a word and people jump to their feet in anticipation of every word that they've written and everything they've created with their team and so if i have anything that i want to say about today i sit across from gary miller and he's a man who's worked with some of the greatest people in the world sting George Michael Rod Stewart Tina Turner Andrea Bocelli Elton John and every time these people go on stage the crowd leaps to their feet in anticipation and you don't get to be great by not working with great people and Gary's the kind of person that you can tell garners the trust of these superstars these people don't have to hire anybody and out in the world wherever you are whatever job you're trying to get those people don't need you the great people don't need you they only want to work with other great people and so when i sit across from gary i see a man who inspired the greatest artists in the world they wanted him on the road with them they wanted him in the studio and if you're out there trying to get where you want to go you want to be the kind of person who you can actually say these words show me who you're with and i'll show you who i am and if you can be great and you can inspire people to feel safe around you and your work blows the greatest people in the world away then you're in a position to have the kind of career that Gary Miller has
1: Here we go in 3, 2 This show will have laughter I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and see me
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking If you're undeniable you will not be denied If you want to be successful in showbiz business, you get yourself a Jew white manager Like Barry Katz <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses, Creating holy shit moments uh, Undeniable You're firing me up Katz I
1: love this man Is there anything else I should know? You're on What huh? <laughs>
0: Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Let me give this guy the proper introduction, and hopefully he'll still be alive at the end. Gary Miller is an internationally renowned English music producer, composer, arranger, and songwriter. Born in 1960, he grew up in a small fishing village named Hull, northeast of England. He grew up really liking hard rock acts like Led Zeppelin, the band Free, and Bad Company. After leaving school, he started performing in different bands and local pubs, as well as working as a songwriter for a local supermarket to supplement his income. He moved to London at 23 and years later he landed a recording deal with miles copeland best known for founding irs records from there he performed on sir elton johns and george michael's tour as a musical director for the faith tour in 1988 shortly after finishing his touring career with the uk pop duo Climy fisher gary did studio and tv work with sting he moved on to become an integral part of two of the most successful production companies in the music business as a songwriter producer at stock aiken and waterman and later at metrophonic miller's credits include rod stewart tina turner simply red slash fergie andrea bocelli lionel richie donna summer Rick Astley, Girls Aloud, Bananarama, Cheyenne, Kylie Minogue, and many, many others. Most notably, Miller worked with David Bowie in 2002 on the track Everyone Says hi and in 2011, he became the first English composer to write a music score for a Russian feature film. After that, Gary Roden produced the soundtrack for the first Russian animated feature film in 3D and also for 12 episodes of television on Channel 1. In the last few years he created a non-profit organization called rock against trafficking a huge fundraising effort and human trafficking especially for children ladies and gentlemen please welcome my guest today gary miller a pleasure to
1: be here barry thanks for such a wonderful intro the <laughs> best one that i've ever had you are welcome my god almighty if i had your voice i would be <laughs> so laid all the time
0: is it true though when you come to this country women just it was an unfair advantage over american men
1: i think so I mean, when I, when i lived in london people used to say to me when you go to america you know this um, th- you know the women and that love the Amer- love the english accent and i didn't really take any notice until i came on the on the george michael tour and i remember getting off the tour bus and speaking to somebody and then there was all these all these girls around as soon as they heard me talking they just stopped in the tracks so then, I was convinced it was true. In the beginning, I didn't, I didn't believe that it was true at all. I thought, nah, surely it's not like that. But, <laughs> but it was. I mean, I think it's, I think it's died down a little bit now. I think people are more used to hearing in, in America English people, because in Malibu and Santa Monica, it's full of, you know, English people now. But my accent is from the north of England, so it's a little bit different from the, from the southern accent. So,
0: why are there so many people from England coming to Malibu?
1: Well. For a start, the weather. I would think. I mean, I, I lived, um, I lived in Miami for a while, and I lived in London. I used to come, I used to come and record in uh, in Los Angeles all the time, but I would come for four days, and it was always brilliant sunshine. And in England, it was just, you know, sometimes six months of the year, it can be just grey skies, you know. So this is, I, I mean, I think this climate in Malibu is the best climate in the world, you know, because it never gets too hot, but it's always sunny, and there's the beach there and everything. So. I think that's. The, I think people, after a while, get a bit sick of the weather. You know, I used to when I when I was like working here, and you sat at the pool one minute, and then the next thing I was back on the plane to sunny old England. You know? <laughs> and also, when it comes to the um, creative side of things, Los Angeles is still the capital of the entertainment industry. So when you're doing what I do, you you, you just you have to follow where it where everything is. Really, you have to be on site. I think when you when you're doing stuff
0: we're in this beautiful house here's in malibu in back of me is a grand piano several guitars and a drum set your neighbors must violently
1: hate you actually it's surprising really but the don't because the house there next door is a is a spare house so nobody's ever there um and it goes right down to the bottom of the garden there and then there fortunately it's an old friend of mine lives there so we've had four piece bandy and and it's and it's really, really good. I don't get no complaints whatsoever.
0: I just bought my son an electronic drum set, so he's slamming away, and I can't hear anything, and then I put his headphones on, it feels like I'm listening to Van Halen.
1: I know, yeah. Well, the great thing about the technology today is that you can have a full band, and you can rehearse through headphones in a place, so you don't disturb anybody, and it sounds really good, you know.
0: I was in your recording studio here, and I saw the equipment you had, and it appears to be the same huge massive board that people have been using for 50 years mm. hasn't the technology updated and changed or is it still the
1: same no the t- technology has changed so much i mean it's just but they created that but like everything's on the computer now but that but what was happening people was using just like a mouse and the click and um so they so they made that which which that actually controls the computer, so every every function on the computer that board connects it it, 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 it controls it sorry, not connects it and um but things i like, i mean I like the big the big board, but I mean you don't actually need that these days
0: are there music studios that you've been into recently where you walk into the music studio and you're looking around and the guy's just in a room with a
1: laptop. Oh yeah, I mean it's just, I mean you'll have you have a laptop and and even the the new desk that's out now that do, does more than that one is four foot square. It's really really small. You know, the technology is unbelievable now. What you can do.
0: Has the technology saved you an enormous amount of time, or is it still the same amount of time it takes? It's just a smaller piece of
1: equipment. No, it saves a lot of time. I mean, when you think when you used to record, you know, you'd, you'd the ta- on the tape you'd play the tape, which was really like two inch tape, which was really expensive. You'd, on a two inch tape, you'd maybe get three songs, but you'd have to press play, you record, you'd get something wrong, you have to wind it back away for it. Here now, it's just a case of pressing the button. So it's speeded up recording. The only thing is, is what's what's happened is lots of different plugins have been developed. So rather than before in a, in studios, you'd have um, two or three reverbs. Now you've got an endless amount of. So you can spend or waste a lot of time going through certain reverbs that look really good, but you know to get. But there's only certain ones that I use, which are usually the older ones that still sound the same. So it can it, it's it's a double-edged sword really. It can it it can be really quick, but it can be a long t- it can be, take a long time when you're going through certain patches on keyboards. You would have to go you know sometimes before you'd have a certain patches, and but now you've got thousands. So you'll you'll open up a new keyboard program plugin, and you just got thousands of of different sounds. So it's and if you want to go through all them, you can spend a lot of time just searching for this one sound you know what do you do when you're working with bowie for
0: let's say six months and then you get the call hey this person wants to work with you on their next album and it's a big paying job we know they're not bowie we think they might not even be a one-hit wonder but
1: they want you Mm. they have the money and will you do with this i mean uh, me personally i've done right across the board in every in like every genre of music so i like, I like music in general i mean to me music is uh, there's only two kinds of music as i think it was Duke Kellington said i think good music and bad music so if it's if it's if it's good and the good artists but i have a, i have a to work with even so there's a lot of artists that have become famous that it's been a struggle to work with them but i mean it's on it's based on success really but um i do like developing new artists if they're good you know if they're really good artists but um yeah it's um it's very difficult, because that's how that's how i earn my living through pr- producing records but if there, if it was really if it was really bad then uh, but then again if there was paying a lot of money you know not that i'm money oriented but if it's you know if it pays the bills all this, all this equipment cost me a fortune, and it costs a lot of money to um, to set yourself up. So, oh, what I would do is I would take it under the production company, maybe delegate it to somebody else because it's a bit. After all, it's a business as well. I would delegate it to somebody else, and I would oversee it, you know. So, but it, it, what we do, we've just found a new, founded a new company called Loud Waves, which is what apparently is what they used to call Malibu. The Indians used to call Malibu. So I thought loud in music, waves in waves, and so that's what we... So now what we're doing is we're going to promote that company so that it's like go to loud waves for, you know, for a production, for a movie, for this sort of thing, you know.
0: Are there artists that you've worked with who when you heard their music before you took the job, you said to yourself don't quit your day job pal but then you got in and you were able to bring something out of them that you didn't even think they had
1: yeah that's I mean with, with technology this, that's really possible I mean even if someone's not well even if you look at the pop music today most of the people that are, that are singing on these records I mean they can't, they're not that they are the best singers in the world but technology has, has taken it so that even the auto tune sound becomes a modern sound now But really, you just need a microphone singing to this machine, and it just takes it to the right note, you know, so you can sing. So you you can make something, you know, you can make something out out of nothing sometimes if you know what you're doing with the equipment.
0: So when Lady Gaga is at the Super Bowl, it's my presumption that you're never going to be able to take the risk of lip syncing. And you don't have any voice machines or anything like that. It's
1: you ironically she lives here in malibu she does, yeah i mean I've, i met her in starbucks where yeah I, she was in the starbucks when we were there that's right Yeah. well i mean the thing is take lady gaga i mean the thing is she might have had all the the gimmicky stuff in the beginning but i always thought from listening to the to her first album that she was the real deal I mean, she can really sing she can really play she can really write songs and she's sort of like that was all a bit of a gimmick but she still had a lot of talent as well and she still has you know i think she's I think she's really, really talented. She's got a great voice, she writes great songs. So I don't think anybody that couldn't do it, I don't think they would have them at the Super Bowl. I think, you know, you, you only get, you know, Bruno Mars and, and Prince, well, when Prince was allowed. You know, they only actually get the, 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 the main ones there, you know. And
0: so they're never gonna hire a person for the Super Bowl who can't sing without an
1: auto-tune. I doubt it, unless unless the song that they was doing was a big was a big hit. I mean, the, the production that we did when I was in Metrophonic, we did the share record Believe, and that was the first record with the auto tune on the verses. But it was just a little tiny little bit of auto tune, but with the, nobody had done that before then. So we in England, we was one of the first ones to do that. Ironically, another person who lives in Malibu, right on the Pacific Coast Highway. When I first came to Livery, I didn't think they all did. I thought this was too far out for me. I thought i need to be in the West Hollywood. They but. all live here. It's also, Adele lives here. Yeah, well, she bought a house here, yeah. It's like I say, get rid of come move away from the English weather. <laughs> you know, they, all the English people are coming here. You know, Ed Sheeran's around here quite a lot, you know, everybody. But when you've lived in England all your life, I mean, this you can't beat this climate and the scenery, and, you know. Of all the artists that you've never worked with,
0: who is the person that you listen to and you are still blown Away, like
1: there's them and there's everybody else. Don Henley. Don Henley's. I mean, I mean, apart from being a fantastic songwriter, I was always a big Eagles fan, and he just got the most amazing, pitch-perfect voice and the tone of his voice and everything. You know, so I'm a I'm a massive fan. I've never, never I've met Don once, but I've, I'd love to work with somebody like Don, Don Henley. You know. I've worked with Sting, and all. they're all fantastic people, but in different capacities. Like, I never ever produced George Michael, but I was on tour. I didn't produce Elton John, but I was on tour with him. You know, Sting, I worked in the studio with him once, and I did some TV with Sting. So, But actually, but people like Don Henley... Um, in fact, one of my biggest pairs um, of people that I wanted to work with, I and mean, you might not be familiar with him, is, is a guitar player called Larry Carlton. Larry Cartman was in he's famous for playing all the the best guitar solos as I'm a guitar player for Steely Dan you know and and it's just like I've been somebody introduced me to his album and um, and I just thought I've never heard guitar play like that so you know I started practicing when I was younger a lot of the stuff and just two weeks ago somebody um, somebody contacted him about me doing the Rock Against Trafficking thing and I was walking down the stairs and I saw this um, text saying hi, Gary. This is Larry Carlton here. <laughs> I nearly mean, fell down those stairs when I walked down there, but that was that's really, you know, because I know how good these people are. I mean, like, I mean, I've been playing guitar since I was nine years old, and I've been done a lot of things on guitar, but never to the standard that he'd done, and, and it's just un- unbelievable.
0: What makes Larry Carlton? better than somebody else are there certain things that he would do equally with somebody else but then there's this one aspect of playing guitar that no one can compare to yeah
1: well I think especially where, where Larry's concerned is such is jazz rock pop blues I mean another favorite guitarist is obviously Steve Lukather but to me they're they're very very different so that's what like you said it's very subjective his music I think it's down to taste you've got Lee Rittner that lives around here all wonderful guitar wonderful guitar players Jeff Beck I love I think for me but one of my favourite guitarists from the old days is is Peter Green from uh, Fleetwood Mac the original blues you know Eric Clapton obviously but um, I think it's very subjective you know I'm not really a big fan of a lot of the guitarists now in the rock band because it's just like, it's just riff, they're just ripping all the time. So there's, and that's just like a tech, to me, that's more technique than feel. That's just somebody practicing how fast they can move the fingers. But when you get like people like Larry Carlton, and Steve Lukather and Jeff Beck, they can just play one note, you know, and the t- that one note can say everything rather than 10,000 notes, you know. And I think I think the problem is with guitar players now, well, not a problem. I mean, it's just, but it's that there's one sort of style, so they're all looking for this technique. So a lot of them just sound, you, you could never dif- differentiate. The only one you can is Slash, who's a friend, you know, and he's a great player, you know, he's a great player. But he's the only one out of the, the newer guitarists that I, um, that I would, has got the feel and he's got everything everything going, you know. So when you first
0: heard. Guns and Roses, mm. you said to yourself, "There's something really special here."
1: It's the songs. I mean, the thing is, I think any genre of music, it's it's all about it's all about hit, it's all about hit songs for me. You know, you can be the best players in the world, you can be the best singer in the world, but if you haven't got the songs, you know, I mean, like for instance, like Madonna is by no way the best singer in the world by a long chalk. But the songs in the beginning of her career were just phenomenal fantastic songs you know so i think it's all i mean and this i mean i worked with donna summer and she's a wonderful singer but there was a period unfortunately before she passed away that she was trying to find what she was what she was doing with a new album and not the songs they just were. so it's it made her sound average you know even though she's not an she wasn't an average singer but uh, it's just the songs really i think that's with any it's with any artist and Guns N' Roses, you know, they had some big hit songs, quite, I mean, you know, the class is metal, but I mean, quite pop, really, quite pop, sort of, pop rocks to foot the way, you know.
0: When you heard the first album, the Nirvana, were you a person who was like, holy shit, or were you like, this is a formula? No,
1: I was, I, was, I mean, the thing is, I was never. I mean, even though they were great, it was that's never that wasn't my sort of cup of tea. Really, that sort. Of, I mean, I came back, and they always say that usually, through your, through your adult life, you usually still like the people that you was brought up with. And I was brought up with Led Zeppelin and Free, you know, and Bad Company, and all that all that stuff. Um, White Snake, I liked in the rock things, but um, so I've tended to everything I hear rock is I, I just can't help but compare it to Led Zeppelin who was f- brilliant productions fantastic songs fantastic re- I mean they just had everything and each band member you know it was it was the, it was a unit that when obviously John Bonham died they couldn't carry on because it would never be the same and I think that was the same with the Beatles really there's only, there's only the odd few where if one goes like the same with the same with Sam and Roses if even though Slash wasn't the singer, Sl- Guns N' Roses are not the same without Slash. You know, they just, it did not matter if somebody played identical to him. There's just something about that, really.
0: It's interesting. So you think Slash is more valuable to the success of the band than
1: Axl Rose? No, I don't think he's more valuable. I think he's I think he's equally equally as valuable. I think if Guns when Guns N' Roses have just gone out and they're out on tour now. Um, they needed all the members, you know. And, and, but Brian May, was, it's the same thing. Brian May, Queen would not have been Queen without Brian May. Same thing. Same with Led Zeppelin without Jimmy Page, you know, this, even though they were singers, you, you don't often get that. So Keith Richards equally valuable yeah. to the Stones. You couldn't do a Rolling Stones without, without Keith Richards, could you? it just wouldn't be the same. You know? Mick Jagger's tried to go and do solo careers many, many times. It's not really been that successful. If you think if you think about it, in all the years together, they're all doing different projects, but it's, it's never the same. I mean, I'm working with a guy now, actually, he was here, he used to call Matt Goss. Now, Matt Goss was in, was in a group called... ..a pop group called Bross. And they haven't had a record out for 26 years. Now, Matt's the singer, and Luke is the drummer, and Luke is a famous actor now in, in Hollywood. Now, separately, they've done very, very, very well, but they've put the show back together again for some dates... They've just sold 50,000 tickets in Wembley Arena, the O2 Arena in Australia. And it's two twin brothers, you know, they've put that together. So I think once people people don't look at it as the same if it's not the same units, you know, if it's not the same people.
0: Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I'm really really excited. We have a new sponsor Aqua True. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, But let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA, many of them. Are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com dot com. It takes you directly to the Aquatru site, and if you get this product, you're gonna get a hundred dollars off. Just type in one hundred in the special code section. You'll get that money off, and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine, and ten minutes later it'll come out with the best-tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. IndustryStandardWater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. All right, let's go way, way back. Oh, bloody. Take me back to where you were born, where you grew up, and what was your first inspiration to get into the music
1: business? Well, I... um. All my family. I'm, I'm from Hull in Yorkshire, which is a, a, which was a major fishing port. You know, so you lived on the ocean. Well, it was not really an ocean. It was the, it was the River Humber, and it was all brown, muddy. You know, so it's like, but um, it was a, f- a fishing a fishing town, and all and everybody. You know, were 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 either in fishing or in the merchant navy. And um, my uncle. He both my uncles played guitar and um, when my uncle was in the Merchant Navy, well, both of them were in the Merchant Navy, sorry, and um, he used to bring his guitar home from sea, and I was I still remember just, it being too big to put on my knee so I'd have to lay it down flat and play with one finger. And that's, that's how I actually started, because that, and my uncle was in a band before he went to sea when he was young, he was in a band playing pubs, so I was, I was around it from... And they used to rehearse in my grandmother, grand, grandmother's living room, so I was around it from. But I can't remember a time when I haven't been around music. So therefore, then, I, then we all the family lived. I mean, my mother lived across the road from my grandmother, from her mother. So we all lived li- literally walking distance. When my uncles they used to be at sea, so they'd be away for months at a time. So then they would come back home, and then the parties would start. You know. And was all lot of, there was a lot of entertainment going on, music playing, you know, and things like that all the time.
0: So when did you feel like you actually
1: could play guitar? How old were you? I think I was about nine years old, I think. Nine years old. I think my uncle taught me um, House of the Rising Sun the animals which everybody you know is that the easiest song to learn because everybody seems to learn that it's just i don't know why it is but yes so that was the first one that i remember apart from playing the guitar with just one finger where i was just messing about you know
0: what age did you realize holy shit i'm fucking
1: good well i think when i was about um 13 14 and because i i mean i practiced all the time i mean or i put records on and laying guitar solos. and The minute I woke up and I used to go to bed with... I was mean, just practising all the time, you know, because that's all I wanted to be was a guitar player. So that was all I was interested in at the time. So I would practise and practise for hours on end. And at and, and that time, now you can get tutorials, but at that time it was the record, and you used to have to put the record on and slow it down. So if it was an album, I'd slow it down with it. Or if I couldn't slow it down enough, I used to have to put pennies on the on the record. So I could slow it down a bit more so I could hear each individual note really clearly. And then I would practise slowly and then gradually just speed it up until I could get it. And Then I knew I was getting better. But what it was is I ended up in a in a, my first group, which was just playing the clubs and doing covers. And I was like, let's say, 13, 14. But they were all 20s in the 20s. So I was like the youngest member. And then I got asked to join, I used to hang about in music shops and you'd meet everybody, you know, it's like, you know, nobody really, everybody was just doing music all day. So you'd be hanging out in the guitar center of England. Well, I should have been been at school. I remember my, my, um, what I used to do, I used to get on the bus to go to school. My mother used to put me on the bus and then we used to get off the bus. All the kids used to go one way and I used to go the other and cross over the playing field and go to the music shop. And people would say to me, mother, I remember once when somebody said to my mother, um, I've just seen your Gary in that music shop on Hazel Road, they called it. She said, no, you haven't, you know, he's in school. She did not, you know. If you go past that shop window, he's sat and <laughs> so I'm there. And what they used to have to do, they'd have, they'd have a drum kit in and the people would come in for a cup of coffee. then The drummer would come in. and they, Because obviously it's not a way, it's people in the shops all the time. Then everybody would start jamming, so I'd be, I'd be there, I'd be messing about with drums and guitars, playing away. And all of a sudden, I'd look out, and there's my mother in there's my mother behind the glass. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, dear, get to school. <laughs> was she mad at you, or did she understand? No, I mean, the thing is, my mother's always she's always understood. I mean, she bought me my first guitar, you know, and my first tape recorder. How old were you when you started recording? Well, what happened was my again my uncle. He was the first one, he bought a tape recorder, but I was only little and he wouldn't let me use it. So I used to wait till he'd gone to work and I'd sneak it on, but then I'd mess <laughs> things up and he'd come back. So you've been touching my records on my tape recorder. And then my mother, obviously, my mother said to her, What do you want for Christmas? I said, I want a real-to-real tape recorder, a grunding one like my uncle's, you know. So she bought me one. So I had my own then and I just used to spend, you know, I mean, then when you think of recording now, I, I used to record on one track. And then you'd press this little bottle in the middle, and then you'd hear this other little box so you could hear what you'd previously done. So I used to do all sorts of different different things about bouncing backwards and forwards. But the quality was awful, but at the time it was fantastic, the fact that you could, you know, do different guitar parts.
0: Tell our audience what the first
1: album you ever bought was. My well, first album was Jimi Hendrix Smash It's. And it had Hey Joe on it and Purple Haze. I'd never heard that before. And then when I heard um, Purple Haze and all that, I just thought and his guitar playing. You'd never heard anything like that, you know. There in that day, somebody's what this is ridiculous. So that was the first album. And it was my uncle again that said, You should leave this new guy called Jimi Hendrix, who's got an album he should and I was nine years old. I was actually nine years old when I got that. I've still got the record as well in new Yorkshire.
0: What was your first Gig where you actually said to yourself, Holy crap, I'm
1: making a living here and I'm only a teenager. Yeah, well, I think it was going around, um, going around the working men's clubs in England because obviously it started when I was 13, 14. What's a working man's club? Oh, yeah, you don't get them in America. It's like a, it's like a social club where they used to have um, artists on, or comedians, you know, and in the northeast of England, it was from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, lunchtime, Sunday, time they always had entertainment on, and these places used to get packed out, and they would be really big. So, I, I spent a lot of years in co- from then on, in cover bands. Now all the rest of the bands used to rest of the members in the bands, they had all they all had day jobs. So it was like a, you know, just a, a a second, you know, a, what, what am I trying to say? Here? It wasn't it wasn't the Marine career. It was just a hobby. A hobby that's what I was trying to say. And um, basically, when they used to work during the day, I had enough money doing the doing the gigs. I didn't have a family; I was only young, so I didn't need to sort of like feed a family and do and, and all this stuff. So I didn't need as much money. So rather than me me looking for a job, I had enough money to to survive. So I'd just stay in all day and just record and and play play and write and try and write and things and practice. And then I'd go to then they'd pick me up, and then I would go to the gig on the night. What kind of money were you making as a teenager on the gigs? It was pretty good, you know. Um, I think maybe um, few hundred, few hundred a week sometimes. And then you'd go, and then which is pretty good then. And then you go away on the Thursday, and then you, if the better the band were, the better the gigs you got. You'd get, off, you'd get, a, end up getting a good following, you know.
0: Your parents let you go away as a teenager.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. But I was never one to get into problems or because it kept me away from trouble.
0: But we all know the lead guitarist and the lead singer, after every show,
1: there's always girls. Well, that was, that's when the problem started. <laughs> How
0: did you, as a teenager, handle these older girls wanting to sleep well, with you? Well, it was fantastic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, obviously. And it gets like that. And you're 15, when you're 15, 16, as well, go to that. And you're going in and you're... It was quite... If It was a good band, which I, There were always good bands, you know, good cover bands. You know, we got quite a good following and got good names and... But the girls didn't know you were 15, did they? No, no, no. But the 16... you got to remember, the 16 is the age of consent in England. It's not like 18 here. It's 16, so you were you know.
0: So tell our audience the first experience you had with a woman
1: that was based on you playing... It was funny, but it was on the very first gig that I did. And that's what got me going, I suppose. It was the first gig in Sea in England. And you're how old? I think I was 13, I think. But the thing is with me, I mean, I'm tall, so I've, and I've always been tall for my age anyway. So, you know, even though I was 13, I, I mostly could have passed as something 17 or 18, you know. But I always remember really clearly, and it was just like... Um, she seemed like a she seemed like a woman. I mean, she was most probably only in her twenties, maybe. I can't re- you know I can't re- remember. But um, the edges meeting her and going in the dressing room, and uh, the rest is history.
0: <laughs> so go. that's how you lost your virginity.
1: That was the first one on the gig, but I lost my virginity in the music shop because I because I'd go because I'd go and work for the I used to, the guy used to make guitar cases. So there was a, there was, a, so I used to wait for him on the weekends. I'd earn a little bit more money there like that. But I had the keys. And I remember I was I was going out with this girl and it was aware the shop was. How old was she? I think she was 16, I think. So we went in, I had the keys, I said, let's go in here. And that was it.
0: My God almighty, I've never met anybody who lost their virginity in a Sam Ash. <laughs> it
1: was, yeah, it was. You want Sam Ash though. <laughs> well the thing is when you're younger as well, like that I mean, more if you're a young kid that 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 day and that's all you think about, isn't it? It's just
0: like all you I remember you just sh- the thought of bending somebody over a keyboard in a guitar center just doesn't seem easy.
1: <laughs> How did you avoid getting these girls pregnant? Well, I didn't actually. Some of them, some of them did get pregnant. You know? <laughs> in fact, so, I used to look at them. In fact, I used to think, well, if I look at somebody, they're going to get pregnant. One, you know. So,
0: so you have many children that you don't know of.
1: No, I don't think. I don't think a lot. But I mean, I've got. I have three children now from three different women and grandchildren. You know, but music breeds that. I mean, that's when you're just doing it on that level. When you are getting onto the George Michael level, then it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just like. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's just the, it's just the, just what it is. I mean, you'd be in the audience, and people would take the trouble to pay, take the trouble to get to write on cards, and they'd be holding the the card up saying, "I'll see you back at the hotel, Gary," and I'd be playing away, and it would be thumbs up, you know. So it was like that. So it was good fun, you know. You thought you was having, when you're younger, that's just like what else have you got to do if you're playing in a band? You're not thinking about getting married. You're not going. You know, it's just gals, isn't it? It's just gals. and...
0: George Michael was kind of an anomaly. When he first came out and you were watching his videos and they were so sexually charged, George obviously was living an alternative lifestyle. Yeah. But when you're working with him and you're on stage at Wembley or Madison Square Garden or wherever you were mm. and these women are throwing their panties on stage oh, yeah. and writing numbers or whatever... Were you laughing to yourself, thinking these people have no idea that this guy isn't on their team?
1: Yeah, it was quite funny sometimes. When you think of the audience was 95 percent women, and and is, but George played to all that. I mean, he was such it was such a a professional, and such a great musician, a great singer performer. I mean, he just knew at the time. It, I don't, I think if I think. When Wham! came out and all, I, I don't think there would there would have been as successful for some reason because he it was such a sex symbol and the and the whole image with the faith image with the leather jacket and the jeans and it was quite a macho sort of like image that he created, you know. When you
0: first meet with George or his people, is that ever discussed? Like, look, this is the image, this is what I have, but I'm not this person. But you have to
1: sign something. No. You will never ever he's never spoke just never spoken about i mean for a start when he was when he was with george i mean he didn't appear gay but he wasn't really camp or anything like that and i mean sometimes now when you see some of his dance routines you look back and you think well, yeah obviously now but at the time so you had no idea no, when he was No no on the face turn
0: but all these women are coming back and you notice that he's not bringing them back
1: Well, he, i mean he couldn't go i mean the the thing is about george i mean that he was so successful in that area but he couldn't go out he was just i mean he, his life wasn't his own anymore. From that faith tour, he was just—it was bigger than any artist on the planet. He couldn't go out. He couldn't go. If, if there was everything, even to the time he died, they was still camping on his outside his house in London. He couldn't do anything. And it was—you once you become a public figure, it's all when you're a teenager and you're having a laugh. it's different. But when you come as big as he did. That's why he wasn't very he wasn't happy. I mean, he never toured for ten years after the Faith tour, because even though he was so successful, I don't think I don't think the bloke could breathe. It's like, and, and, he, and quite a sh- he was quite a shy person as well. So it's not as if he was it was like Boy George he was it re- was really flamboyant with it all. George is quiet and he's pretty shy. And he's a he, he was always a very serious musician, you know. So it, it's, it was entertainment, and his career was. I think it was more important. He didn't have to go and dress up or do this. He wanted his music to be taken seriously. And it was. You know, it was taken very seriously from, from sort of like day one, you know.
0: So take our audience through your first big break where you actually were playing with somebody
1: who had made it. George Michael, the Faith Tour.
0: How'd you get the gig?
1: Well, oh, just by chance. What it was is um, I went to Wembley Arena. And a friend of mine was playing in the support band, supporting a big English group called Five Star that was like the equivalent of the Jacksons. So I went in there and he was playing in the support band and um, Dion Estes, who we're still friends now, we work together now still, And Dion was George Michael's bass player in Wham, you know, from from day one. And um, we happened to go backstage and Wham had finished and there was... And I just got talking to Dion, and we was backstage. We're going to go on tour, you know, with this Faith tour, and I went. And he just said to me, "Would you like to do it?" Because I knew it, it aired of me from, you know, I mean, remember I was 27 back then. I'd been living in London. I was 27 when I did the Faith tour, so I'd been I'd been around about and doing sessions and things like that, and guitar and keyboard sessions. So I was I'd got myself a little bit known in the London circuit. And um, I just was backstage, met Dion, who was like a big celebrity to them with Wham and everything like that. And he just said, "We're going out on tour. I need this. You know, I need another keyboard player. Would you be interested, so, so I said, "Yeah." So that's how it started. It was just by it was, it was just by being in the right place at the right time, so, which I think is really important. But that's why I always say to people, don't start thinking you're going to do this when it comes you've got to do it now and prepare down the road because, you, because the thing is about music you never know what you never know when to, when anything's going to happen nothing's you, you, you can't just plan it and strategize it and go we're going to do this this thing unless you're going to spend a couple of million dollars and, and pay everybody to make it successful so it's a case of hard work and and making yourself available Networking and stuff like that. So it was basically that really.
0: What was the inspiration for you to leave performing live music and Becoming
1: a producer well because like I said I, I got spoiled first time round I wasn't enjoying it as much roaming around the country and also It was after you've been spoiled. You, there's only ended up a few gigs you can do I mean I could have carried on doing that and just searching for gigs and like, like a lot of, like a lot of people were but um, I got offered the job with Stock Aiken and Waterman, with Pete Waterman. And I had to think then, it was less money, but I thought, well, these are people that have, are writing songs. that they were, so su- they were the most successful production team on the planet, you know? And I thought they are having hit record after. At one point, we had from number one to number 10 in the charts. Oh, Top 10 songs written and produced by Stock Aiken and Waterman, the organisation. I don't know what was in that 10, but we did you spin me Around, dead or alive. We discovered Rick Astley. Never going to give you up. We wrote and produced all the Rick Astley stuff. Um, we discovered Kylie Minogue. Yeah. So she was she was in Neighbours and we brought her over. She wants success in the music industry. We produced and wrote a song for her which became a hit. Sunita, There's lots. There was lots of. Her. And then once you have that success, everybody comes to you. But I just wanted to. I wanted to be songwriting. And I wanted something more stable rather than. And apart from anything else, you can't be. When it's party mode all the time, you know, it wears you down after a while, you know. You don't seem like a partier to me. I used to be. (laughs) Well, no, I have have my moments, you know. Well, it's not partying, you always come to life when there's loads of gorgeous women around. That was the problem you that when you're young, you know, so basically, I think it was a case of for start getting spoiled, I wanted something more secure with a wage, it was a weekly wage, a lot less than I was getting, but you know it was it got me into that fold of and it was a big deal for me to be asked to be part of that company you know
0: I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called i killed j f k it's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews never been seen before you can't find them anywhere except on this documentary go to ikilljfk.com look at the trailer buy this documentary and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special i'm going to choose one person randomly and i will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name. And I want you to tell me any great story that comes to mind.
1: David Bowie. Well, David Bowie, for a start, is all his band, Ziggy Stardust, were all from Hull, where I was born in Yorkshire. Mick Ronson, um, Trevor Boulder, the bass player, and Woody Woodman, see, were all from Yorkshire. They're all Yorkshiremen. Johnny Cambridge, who was, the, was his first drummer, you know, they are, I used to hear all these. David Boy stories all the time, so I, I had I had a connection with David Boy from just because his his band were friend, ended up being Friends of Man, you know. The biggest thing for me when uh, with it was doing this album, the Heathen album, and we had, the the production company that I was with had just got a consultancy deal with Tommy Mottola at Sony, and David had just signed to Sony, and the Tony Visconti was doing the album, but they decided there was no. They didn't think there was a single on the album so they approached our production company with a rough demo that david had done and said do you think you can do anything with this and he was like so obviously they asked me to get involved and i did and it was it, was, it ended up being his biggest selling single for 20 years from the let's dance era you know yeah. everyone says hi they called it and the next thing was it is he was he was playing at the Hammersmith Odeon in london when I actually went there to saw him to see him perform, and then he actually played the song that I produced. Now, I didn't do it with his band. I did all the music myself, because I got the, I got all the stuff, and we did it in. I did part of it in London, and then things were done in New York. So I got sent the stuff. So I played the guitars and the programming and things like that. And usually, when somebody does something live, I thought he'd maybe just do a different arrangement on it since it was live, but he didn't. They did it. And they copied all my parts, bit of a note for note, which was fantastic. That was a, that was one of the big highlights for me, you know. And obviously, the other one was working with Sting when I was in the studio. Didn't expect Sting was to to come, and he did, and he turned up at the studio, and that was a that was another big one. But that did the David Bowie thing about getting something like David Bowie being the biggest tw- biggest single, and then seeing him live doing, you know doing what I'd actually toiled over. Hmm. Yeah, there's nobody like David Bowie. You know, I don't think there ever will be because he, he never followed any patterns. He just oh, from day one, I think he just did what what he felt like. I mean he was a true he was a true artist, you know, and his he never followed any genres. One minute he was doing Ziggy Stardust, which was the rock thing. Then he went onto the Young Americans, which is a real soul thing. Then he went through the drum and bass stuff. Then he went through the really pop era through through, through uh, Let's Dance and things like that, which apparently he didn't like at all. He felt like he'd sold out then, even though it was his most successful thing. I think he felt that he'd sold out then. And then that's why he did Backlash Against It and then did The Tin Machine, which I wasn't necessarily a big fan of that. But I think that it was just him just going, right, I want to do this something a bit raw. And it's just lyrics and the songs and and just fantastic, just a great body of songs, you know, I mean, even the the last thing that he did that it was, that he died, when he died, like, like Lazarus. I mean, and the, and the, I don't know where, I mean, I write songs all the time, but I don't know where he would get his melodies from. He's just like, it's always, he's, he, there was always something like the Lazarus thing. I'd never heard a melody like that before. And even the, the artistic value with the dancers, they're very strange, you think. You've not seen this before, you know. He always seemed to come up with things that you'd never, you'd never seen before. And that, you know, that puts people. Because you know, we're in pop music, you're always copying. Like, a big hit comes out. And well, unfortunately, everybody wants a big hit. It's like, so what do, what do you want? You've got a new artist, they've just signed to Sony or Universal. What do you want? And they're just going to look at, well, Katy Perry or Cher or. They don't say, well, let's have something totally different. They just want a hit record. Katy Perry. Mm. Well, basically what happened there was I was friends with a guy that was involved with a management company, and they had the records out, and that was like just a simple, started off as just a simple remix, really, and I ended up doing three of them, like California Girls, Teenage Dream, and The Alien, so that was just like a, a sort of like a remix, John, and I did, my, I did some new versions of the songs that went down really well. I got all the vocals sent to me. That's the thing is nowadays, which is, which sometimes it's quick, but sometimes it's a problem because you can work anywhere now. See, before, when you'd work with people, you had to be in the same room and you did this, but...
0: But don't the artists send you a note and thank you?
1: No. <laughs> no, I mean, a lot of them, you do, you get up um, a relationship with them, but a lot of is, like I've just done a Kiss record for Kiss. They wanted me to do, um, I Was Made For Loving You which I did a dance version of I Was Made For Loving for Doc McGee and the management and they loved it but you know the, the band didn't know anything about it so, it's, so I just got um, Paul Stanley's vocal sent to me and I just built the track around his vocal so you know we do it and then the next thing they hear it in the charts or in some club you know <laughs> but that's how it's going now you know a lot of people they, just, they can just send it send an email with, with the, his lead vocal Elton John well that was fantastic I mean I was I was with a guy called Nick Kershaw who was one of the biggest songwriters there and um, we got asked to go and do the European tour with Elton and that was he was such a great guy you know and um, it was just fun just touring touring around it was like it's been at a party for four months (laughs) and he's very generous very kind you know um, and playing to all them arenas. It was just a fantastic experience, but I had a, a great experience with them. But that was, he went to his 40th birthday party very in Paris, you know. So you get treated like a king for a while, and then you go going off, but then they go off and rest for a, a year while they're doing an album, and you, know, you end up with another gig. It's like, a, that was just like a job, really, you know. It's like a four months job. You know, you rehearse for a couple of months and then tour for four months. So it takes you out for six months and then you go and do something else. Or you, or you repeat it if they go out again, you know. Did you ever
0: have any artists that treated you above and beyond and they were so generous and they gave you great gift at the end and then other artists who treated you and the other crew tight with the money and you guys, the morale was bad? Unfortunately
1: for me, you no. Know, I've, I've personally never had that. I mean, everybody was really generous. I mean, we were looked after very well. The, the hotels were fantastic. No, it was just like living a, living a five-star life for when, you, when you're on the road with these people. Um, so I, fortunately, I never, I never experienced it. What happened to me was the first tour was George. The second one was Elton John. The third one was a band called Climmy Fisher, which were very successful in Europe, but they weren't quite big enough to do arenas. They were just doing theatres. So I actually got a little bit spoiled. So I did this tour, and then we were just staying stay in mediocre hotels, and <laughs> we were on a bus for hours and hours. I thought, you know what, I'm I'm, I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing it. Because so it was very it was very hard to sort of like, but I did it, and it's just and that's when I went totally hundred percent into production and songwriting after that. Bananarama. Bananarama. Well, I was they come from an organised. I was with a. Stock Aitken and Waterman is a very big music mogul called Pete Waterman who I joined after the Elton John tour and then I did a record that had already done the vocals and then the reason they got me in is because they needed help because they were really busy so I do some put some keyboard and some guitar on the first, on the record that we was doing with them and just gradually over a period of time I got to know the manager and then the manager just approached me and said would you um, consider writing a couple of songs with banana and armor for them or with them so i said yeah of course yeah so we did and it went really well so from then it went from just two songs to an album and so i wrote and produced uh co-wrote and produced the the album with with the two there was only two girls then and that's that's how that came about you know enrique and glacius um well, that when we were a, a quite a successful, becoming a quite a successful production company, and the Universal in Spain, who we were signed to at the time, said we've got this, you know, in, um Julio's son, and we think it could be really big, you know. And we had a song that Brian Rawlings, who was the head of the company, he sent out to Universal. They said, "Have you got anything?" He just sent this song called Balamos. And um, and they liked it, so Enrique came, sang. The Universal put it out, and it became a massive hit. So then we did the next one, the next one, then we did Hero. That was a producer called Mark Taylor that did, did that. We had and in there, then, then the, it'd come bigger. There was four producers: me, um, Graham Stack, Walter Terbitt, and Mark Taylor. And um, so we had four producers and writers Paul Gacol Paul Barry that I worked with for years and um, yeah it just it was just it's quite simple simple, it seems simple but and it is actually simple the way sometimes things work out but you don't realise all the amount of effort that goes in it's the years and years that you you put in it beforehand you know we was writing all the time and writing songs and producing records so it was just It was look sheer look the same with the share record believe same thing, yeah. They had a song which which Rob Dickens the head of Warner's he liked the chorus but he didn't like the verse he didn't like the production, and he didn't like the middle eight so he came to us and said can you rewrite this verse and rewrite this thing this middle eight or bridge section as they call it in America, and um, so we did you know, and it was number one in 19 countries. But Rick Astley was number one in 25 different countries. You know. There's a big world, you know, it a, I think he was number one here, I think, as well for, for a while. Rick Astley. Well, it's funny about Rick, but he was famous all those years ago. And now somebody brought back Never Gonna Give You Up. So, I didn't even know, it's so, so a few weeks ago. And he's just had a number one album in the UK so it's come right come right. it's all gone full circle in fact all that Stock Aiken and Waterman stuff has gone it's a big 80s thing you know it's it's all come full circle again so he's doing he's doing fantastic again you know but um, he was he was working as the as the tea boy at Stock Aiken and Waterman bringing everybody the tea and um, then Pete Waterman realised he could sing Mike Stock wrote the song and then the rest is history you yeah. know it was because they called it the hit factory because it was a factory it was like that's all we was doing we'd we, you know we'd we'd try and fathom out what we needed as a hit would as a hit record so we wrote pop tunes so it was you know so that's what we did so it was all the time once you have a hit in a production company everybody comes to you you know so
0: out of every dollar that's earned off the recording a record comes out and it's a record that you guys wrote for mm. Rick Astley. Mm. I want you to explain to our audience
1: what the breakdown is of the 100% pie. Well, it starts off with what you've got. You've got the producers who get there maybe 4%. Then you get the writers who... Depends on how many people. If it's just one person, you get hundred percent of the publishing, or you split it three ways, or whatever like that. You know? Publishing would be how much out of the hundred um, percent? Well, that's um, that varies, right? It all depends what deal you've got. It can be a fortune, and it can be it can be really bad where you sign a ridiculous contract, and you sign all your money away, and you lose it, which we've all done, you know.
0: Let's just pretend you have a hundred dollars that's made off of a record. Four dollars goes to the production company. Did it. Yeah, the publishing rights have to be a certain percentage. Forget what the artist makes; the publishing rights is how much percentage of that hundred percent.
1: Well, it depends if you do a deal. If you you do a publishing deal with a publishing company, you'd maybe do in that deal maybe a 70 30 deal where we would retain seventy percent and the publishing company would take thirty percent of that publishing. But in the early days, it was like fifty-fifty, but that became illegal. You couldn't do it. and then it was forty. 'Cause because and the powers that be used to take that. But then that became illegal to do that. So it just you try and get your best deal as you possibly can, you know. So then it went to 80-20. And if you're if you're a big songwriter, obviously it's best if the publishers will do a deal maybe for ninety-ten, or they take five percent because if the If they're earning so much money, you can get, it's like anything, you get a better deal, you know, so it depends what sort of deal you do with the publishing company. And tell our audience what the remaining money goes to. The songwriter. So you've got different things, you've got, you've got songwriting royalties, um, you've got performance royalties if you actually played on the record. So if you played a note on that record or sang a backing vocal, you'd get paid for that as well. So you get paid every time it's played on the radio, every time it's played on TV, if you on the publishing, you get paid, but so does um, a performer as well, like a guitarist, a session player. You sign a musician's union form, and if that's played on you, I mean, in, back in the day, like if you do a Carly Minogue, Carly Minogue record, and you played on it, before the single was released, she would promote that for six weeks, so she'd be on every TV show, you know? And it used to I mean, you could end, you could end just on, just on performance royalties for the TV in a week about three grand you know which is good then it would be six thousand dollars for literally doing nothing you'd already been paid for the production so you'd get paid for the performance royalties so if you played on the record and you produced it you'd get your performance royalties for playing it and your production royalties as well so how is companies like Spotify and Apple Music
0: taking money out of the artist's pocket
1: well because now well this is another thing with, with a lot of stuff is that in the day of the contracts, there was no such thing as streaming, just like there was no such thing as CDs when people signed the deals for these albums. So what the powers that be do is, because when they were doing CDs, there was no streaming clause in it, so that's classed to streaming. So they're, not paying, so they're not paying anything out. This is what the big uproar is. They're becoming, I think, Spotify's maybe worth about $14 billion now. But they're not paying. But they they've made all that money through music, and they're not paying. They're not. They're not want paying out. You know, like ridiculous. But it was a loophole. But I think that will change. I think. So
0: why are the artists supportive? Some of them of Spotify.
1: Well, it's because Spotify has become the main thing now. It's just you know. But they're trying to change the as far as I know, they're trying to change the rules. But Spotify is them because it's all streaming. So the, I think the streaming laws are going to change, which will then but then make it so that we can earn money again, big money again. Now, people like Spotify and then the powers that be and all the tech companies, they don't care about that because they know if they get in for a couple of years, they've made all their money. Now, I think that's a lot of the policy. A lot of people want to form companies nowadays to get in and get out quick. So I th- that's that's my feeling on it all. You know, so now we're now we getting to the stage where they're gonna make it expensive, they'll mostly go down the drain, you see, but they don't, if they're worth 14 billion, I mean, who cares? They'll just do something else. Like Napster. And What I think should have happened, when Napster first came out, rather than all record companies fighting against it, they should have just bought the technology. Like the, And I think a lot of them have got smart, and I think that's what they do, you know. Anybody that's coming, they just want to take everything from them, you know. Sting. Mm. Well, Sting was, um, well, for a start, I... Well, the first thing was when I did the TV, I was sent to, in England, we, when they was doing a TV show, which he was doing, the Terry Wogan show, which is the equivalent of um, the Letterman show in England. And I, wait, I worked for an agency, and what we used to have to do, if somebody was performing at, on TV that night, we used to have to go to, in the studio during the day and supposedly re-record it. But that was just a union thing. We never did really. What we used to do was just to go sit there and have a cup of coffee in case one of the, the union men came around. Then we'd get paid a couple of hundred pounds, you know. So I walked in at Maison Rouge Studios in London thinking that I was just going to sit there and have a cup of coffee and, and uh, a chat with all, you know, and that's it for a few hours and get paid and leave. But then Dominic Miller, who was still Sting's Sting guitarist, said to me, Oh, Sting usually likes to come. And I'm thinking, Oh, blimey. And so with that, um, in Walk Sting with his two kids, with his bass on his back, and he's introduced himself. Out. I said, oh, "I was pleased to meet him and that." So we did. So we just basically, so we basically got his bass out, and we just basically had a jam in the studio, we mic'd up and things like that. And um, when we'd finished, he said to me, "Gary, what are you doing this evening?" So I said, "Well, nothing really." He said, "Would you like to perform?" on the Terry Wogan show with me. So that was really exciting, And yeah, of course. And then a lot of my friends joined his band afterwards and I met him after that and he's I mean, got a house in Malibu now. Slash. Well, Slash, when I decided to do this um, chari- this album to against child slavery or human trafficking, um, Slash was the first person on board. And usually with these artists, the first the question they ask, who else is on board? and he's saying nobody he's like well come back when you've got somebody goes, well why don't you be that person then And slash I had I had um, breakfast with him through a friend I told him about what I wanted to do and he just said I'm in and he's been in ever since for the last four years and he's a great you know he's, you know, he's a great really nice guy does a lot for charity does a lot of stuff now so that was really impressive, and they stuck... And, the, you know, the, the Rock Against Trafficking things it hasn't, it's not been a smooth ride, but he just, he's just stayed solid all the time. You
0: know? How many recordings have you done?
1: Uh, 15 songs. But that album was released? It's not released yet, because it's been... Uh, you know, getting all these artists to perform and tie it all together is a long process. So it's finished now, and I'm just in the final mix stages.
0: Are you allowed to say who some of the artists are on oh, the yeah? album?
1: Um, I've got Slash, Fergie... Um, Hart, Santana, Journey, Kebmo, Matt Goss,
0: and Beth Hart. Beth Hart. She won Star Search with a unanimous vote about 20 years ago when I was a judge on Star Search. And I've known her my whole life. And she is, I would say, the greatest
1: non-household name performer I've ever seen in my life. Totally agree with her. We talk, I was talking to the manager. The manager came here last week. And we're talking about me doing some writing with her. I'm gonna do I'd like to do some some of that with her as well. If Janice Joplin were alive today yeah, exactly, it yeah. would be Beth Hart. Yeah. Yeah, she's wonderful and, and so I wanna do some work with her. Um Andy Fraser, who was the ba- happened to be the bass player in Free, the band that I mentioned when I was young. Me and him became really, really close friends. Free had the hit song All Right Now. Well he wrote All Right Now. So and that was like remember when I was eight years old, that was the band that I was crazy over and they ended up being good friends with him and he was partners with me in Rock Against Trafficking and unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago which was a suddenly a big blow but the, the album is dedicated to Andy Fraser, the bass player. Your so. proudest moment in show business. Oh, me There's been quite a few really. There's been... I mean obviously first the first times I started touring uh, and that first night at it was at Ells Court on the George Michael Gig. That was fantastic. Going to Madison Square Gardens with George. And then um with Elton John, which was a fantastic night. We did I again did T V with um Nick Kershaw, the 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 Terry Wogan show. And Terry Wogan was um so the equivalent of Letterman. Now we had to be on the st- on stage. At, so you couldn't turn that gig down because if he was on that show, it meant your record was going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. So we did that, but we didn't have much time to get to Wembley Arena. So we had to have police motorbikes, and I remember I was wearing a yellow suit, a banana yellow suit, and we got on the motorbikes, and the police went on the on the pavements on the sidewalk, and we drove into Wembley Arena. The back up the ramp, took the helmet off, and then they put my guitar on, and we went and started performing which we, we just we just made it, you know. So there was that. That was fantastic. And then um, Sting, obviously, all, all the big hand on the on the writing side, it was Donna Summer. Pete Waterman said to me, um, you know, he said that uh, we've got just out of the blue, said we've got Donna Summer coming in on Thursday and I need three songs. Bye. <laughs> and that was it. And off he goes down the stairs, and I'm stood at, stood at the top of the stairs at the studio. I said to him, Pete, yeah, but what? Like what? Is this, this is Donna Summer coming in, you know? Oh, you just, I'll leave it to you. So, so we, me and my writing partner, Paul Barry we just started slogging it out for the next three days. And she actually loved it when she came in. She loved the song and she performed it live right up until she died. She used to perform it on the song all the time. So that was another good one. Meeting Don Enley was another highlight. Um and just recording, I mean Slash and, and the fact that, you know, producing people like Slash and Journey you know, for this album has been incredible, you know, it's been it's been really, really good. Glenn Hughes is on it as well from Deep Purple. So there's a lot there's a lot or oh, Rob Thomas, I should say as well. Matchbox twenty. All done fantastic, phenomenal jobs, you know
0: your biggest disappointment in show business and how you
1: used it to fuel yourself to the next level oh the biggest disappointment there's been lots and it's hard to actually think because I think that's what that's what the music business is it's it's like a roller coaster one minute you're up there and everybody wants you and then it's just then you're in the gutter again It's it's been like that all macaroon. It's, it's not. It's no easy. I mean, the thing is, I don't know anything else I couldn't do. But it's the thing. Sometimes I, I wish there was something else I could. When then troughs come, but you just have to keep working hard. But um, there's been a lot of disappointments. Obviously, you you do records that you really like and you want them to be successful, and nobody's bothered. You know, trusting people. You know, musicians are known for getting ripped off and producers. Um, I see records now that have still been sold that like I did that um, uh, have been sold since 1992 I don't get a penny from it so there's a lot of things like that goes on you know still but the rest of it has been quite I've been quite blessed with it all really and, and um, I've had a real co- one thing I, I've been fortunate is that every ta- everything I've done I've set out to do I've actually achieved, you know, one, one way or the other. Not easily, because that's you know. People think that they don't realise the, how hard the Beatles worked for five years before they even had a record deal. They were slogging it up in the motorway and and in, in, in a van, sl- all four of them sleeping in one room. You know, people don't people are spoiled these days with the, with American Idol. They think it's all glitz and glamour, and they want to be famous just like that. And it's, I don't I don't believe there's no such thing as overnight success. You no. Know.
0: What advice would you have for the young person growing up in a small fishing village in a country far, far away who has a dollar and a dream and wants to do something special and wants to be an expert in their field, not only like you have in the performing side, but also behind the scenes to have the kind of career that you've had?
1: Well, I think I think it starts with persistence, really, because, I mean, it's, you just... You know, you just work so hard, and, and it's one of them things where you're up all night doing it. It's quite addictive, is, is music. I mean, and I it's funny, but I discovered only about maybe three years ago that it's not about getting the hit record. It's the actual process. It's it's an art. So it's like, and I remember feeling really depressed one time in in Malibu here, as <laughs> I was, you know, and I was in the back, I was in the backyard, and I thought. Just feeling a bit miserable, a bit low, and then I went into the studio. I started doing a song, getting something—not for any reason. Just started doing some things, and I felt instantly my mood just changed. So then I realised, well, it's the it's the process. It's the process of doing music, even if you're never successful with it, you should you should always strive to that because it's just a fantastic it's just a fantastic thing to be able to do, even if you're never successful. At it you know, it's just it's just so enjoyable be creative and everything but I think if you want to be really successful all you can do is just, just keep going and you're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail everybody does I have done many many times you do You do what you fail all the time but you just got to keep I think you've just got to keep going and be persistent and obviously just work really hard I mean it's, 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 that's the problem with today everything looks like it's so easy you know, with YouTube everybody wants to be famous they want to be a, a TV producer they want to be a record producer songwriter and the thing is I think it's just consistency and just hard work and and practice you know just you've got to keep going I think most people a lot of people today they've got a, a, a very long attention span so if it's not working within three months you're like oh, this yeah I'm gonna try something else now so it's a, it's, a, it's a lifelong ambition really
0: Gary Miller this has been incredible. I'm so, so grateful. I think our audience and myself
1: learned a lot today. Well, you're very, very kind. It's an honor to be on then, to be asked. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary, I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary. And you can get it at the website ikilljfk.com. You can see the trailer. And it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions. Or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country... Will Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Joan Peterson from Carlsbad, California. Congratulations, Joan. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message. A review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Corvette Guy 56, five-star review, July 17, 2013, titled "Mr. 100% Keeps On Keeping On." The review reads: "Nice work, cats. Good stuff." Okay. short and sweet thank you corvette guy 56 congratulations you are a winner special thanks to our new sponsor aqua with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology check it out go to industrystandardwater.com it takes you directly to their website type in the code 100 save yourself a hundred dollars I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com And as always, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. (laughs) you get all the money Drop that fancy car all the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer. They have all to gain It's never quite over
1: So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own
0: grave Down Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave...